Two weeks ago, we looked at the greatness of the Holy Spirit, focusing on the fact that he is God and how that he's been sent to comfort us, to lead us, and to guide us. Last week, we looked at the greatness of the cross, Christ's cross, and the vital importance it is for us to understand that truth so we can function and have right thinking in the world. And this morning, what I'd like to do with you, I would like us to look not only at the goodness of God, but the greatness of God, not just as God, but as God who is our Father. The very first word in the Hebrew concordance, that is, if you were to take a Hebrew Bible and look at all the Hebrew words and look at the concordance alphabetically, the very first word in the Hebrew concordance is the word ab, A-B. That word means father. The Aramaic, which is close to the Hebrew, that's probably the language that Jesus spoke. The Aramaic, the way that they would call their father, the Hebrew word or the Aramaic word is the word Abba, which is a tenderness referring to not just he's my father, but that he's my dad. The Greek word for the word father, since we're looking at the greatness of God as our father, the Greek word for father is the word pater. For mother, it's mater. But for the father, it's pater. That's where, if we smooth it into our English language, we don't say pater, we say father. Here are some ways in which the scriptures use the word father in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In, in the book of Matthew, chapter 6 and verse 9, we all know this particular prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray was our Father. Not just my Father, but he's our Father. It's interesting really to note the following. When you study Muslim theology, when you study the Quran, and when you study their view of Allah, basically all Allah means is God. In fact, the Pentecostals in some of those Middle Eastern countries, they're called the Assemblies of Allah. But in Muslim theology, in reference to the word Allah and Father, they strongly forbid ever looking at Allah as Father. And yet, when we look at Scripture, Jesus taught us to pray our Father. In 1 John chapter 2, 
verse 15, the scriptures say, don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the rest of that verse says, the love of the Father is not in him. And so that lets us know that if we're really chasing after the world or loving the world or desiring this world, then maybe we need to really examine ourselves and ask ourselves, do I truly belong to God and to the Father? Because he has sent his spirit into our heart. It's a jealous spirit. He has sent his spirit into our heart that our spirit doesn't long for the world, but our spirit cries, Abba, Father. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9 and verse 6, we're looking at the greatness of God as our Father. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now think with me just for a second. If he is called the Everlasting Father, the impression almost can be made that then, if he is an everlasting father, he has an everlasting son. And Isaiah said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. In the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus said, you believe in God. He said, believe also in me. He said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. And if Christ is in heaven and two of the roles that he has, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession. But if Christ said, in my father's house are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you, does it then imply from Scripture that not only does Christ make intercession for us from heaven, but that God is even preparing a mansion or rooms in heaven for us. And his focus in heaven is just not all about receiving glory, but his focus is on his people and his preparation for them to come to be with him. What a mighty Savior we have. And we're talking about the greatness of God as our Father. He said, you believe in God. He says, believe also in me. 
He said, in my father's house, there's many mansions. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if we're preparing a place, part of what he is doing, he's preparing a place for us because he's thinking about us. I'm glad his mind is set on me too, aren't you? In the book of Mark, chapter 14, we have Christ there in the garden. And he's, as he's agonizing, he's pleading. He says, Father, if it's possible, what does he say? Let this cup pass from me. I've always found it interesting that in his deep agony, he is still looking at this creator being that he knows that he's from, that he's part of. He just doesn't look at him as God, but in his deep agony of woes, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, let me be a true preacher. Sometimes you hear preachers get behind pulpits and they think just because we have faith that everybody's going to be hunky-dory and peachy cream. How many know what I'm talking about? But when we begin to study scripture, we recognize that sometimes we ourselves may go through Gethsemane-like experience and there's no way out. It may be tight, but it's right. And the fact is, when God does not deliver us out, the greatness of God, God will help us through. But my friend, but if we'll go through when there's no way out, it may seem like we may die on a Friday, but God has a way of resurrecting us on a Sunday. We may feel like we've experienced death, but if we'll be faithful to the Lord in the middle of a Gethsemane-like experience, God will honor us with a name too. As the Bible says God gave him a name that's above every the name. God may give you a name. There's the faithful one. There's my chosen one. There's my honored one. There's my servant one. God still gives out names to those that'll go all the way with him. In the book of Luke, we're still talking about the greatness of God as Father. When Jesus is on the cross, having experienced all the agonies and all the woes, as he's dying with his final breath, he looks to heaven and he says, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. And even in the book of John, Jesus himself said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He says, no man is able to go unto the except by me. So not by Buddha, not by Muhammad, it's not by channeling, it's not by Shintoism or Confucianism, 
My friend, there's only one way to the Father. Jesus said, I'm that way. I am the truth and I am the life. You can't get to this wonderful Father but by me. Now, we're looking at the word Father. In the Old Testament, the word Father, now, Father in reference to God as being our Father, because that word Father is used in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. But the word Father, referring to God as Father, is only used 15 times. So it seems to start as a trickle, but it seems to get bigger and bigger as we come into the New Testament where it almost becomes a notion. Now let me be a good scholar here. There's a lot of inferences in the Old Testament that we're his sons and his daughters and his children and his people. But the word father is not used, but the, strictly the word father is used 15 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the book Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. Syn, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, they're called the synoptics because the word syn, S-Y-N, means same. The word optics, you can help me out, the word optics generally refers to eyesight, vision. So it's called synoptics because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are telling the story of Jesus from the same optical or vision of perspective. John does not use that same thrust. John takes a different thrust. So in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that word is used 65 times. That God is Father. The Muslims, he's God, and I better be careful, and I better hope that maybe at the very last day, maybe I've done a good thing, and maybe he'll allow me in. But the scriptures reveal him not just as God or Lord or the Almighty, but what a wonderful truth we have revealed to us in scripture that our God is also seen as our Father. In John's gospel, called Johannine Theology, in John's gospel, the Father is used around 100 times. 30 of those times, Jesus is referring to himself in relationship to the Father as the son, for example, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees his father doing. And the wonderful word of encouragement for you and I, even though he's the Lord, even though he's the Almighty, even though he's El Shaddai, even though he is one to be completely honored and revered, but he's also our father. Hence, we have this great revelation in 1 John chapter 3, 
where John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Think that. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. But what a wonderful revelation. My friend, we are children of God. Because the reality, most people in this world, they don't really want God. They don't want God. Wine, women, and song. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Most people don't want. But the scripture says, but to as many as received him, to them he gives the power or the authority to be called sons or children of God. And so what I'd like to explore with you this morning is four simple truths of what does it really mean or what words of encouragement can we find from that truth that God is not just God, but that God is our Father. First truth. Scripture says that the Father is compassionate to us. I believe behind me we'll have the passage in Psalm 103. And the Scripture says, look, the psalmist says, as high as the heavens are over the earth. Think of the heavens as high as they're over the earth. He said, so great is his steadfast love. But there's a caveat to those who fear him. Because there's a lot of people, you and I would agree, there's a lot of people that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. There's a lot of people who have profession in Jesus, but they don't have possession of Jesus. And so the psalmist said, look, just as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great is his steadfast love toward those who love him. So we see in verse 11, there you have this love that God has, this compassion. It's a great and steadfast compassion, or, or it's a great and steadfast love. It says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions. I've heard it say, I don't know, some of you might be a little bit sharper at this than I am. But they say that the east and the west, they never, they never meet. So if Christ removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, it's gone. It just won't occur. And so it's a steadfast love. It's a steadfast compassion. It's a forgiving love. It's, it's a forgiving compassion. But notice what it says at the very end. He says, as a father. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children. I remember when my little girl, Lisa, and I remember she was in kindergarten, I think. So she might have been five or six. They had a play. And, you know, and it was at the Grace Brethren church and she was going to kindergarten there and they had a play for Christmas. It might have been 30 or 40 kids in the kindergarten classes and when the play was going on they were singing whatever they're doing, the little things there and don't crucify me. I mean there's 40 kids up there. 
the only person, what do you think I'm going to say? The only person that I was looking at was my daughter. I believe that if God had a refrigerator and if he had pictures in his wallet, he'd have your picture on that refrigerator. And he says, look, as a father looks and shows compassion to his children, so the Lord, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now notice in that passage twice he used the expression to those who fear him. William Gurnall in the 1600s made this statement. I'm still trying to learn and work this thing through because all of us here, we come and even we're here, but we still walk with limps. There's still baggages that we've experienced from our past life and God's still working in these situations that take us from glory to glory. William Gurnall he made this particular statement. I believe it's the next slide. Gurnall said the following. He said, we fear men so much because we really fear God so little. He said, one fear cures another. He said, when man's terror scares you, he said, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. But we're looking at this truth As a father shows compassion toward his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who honor him and love him. The wonderful thing about God is that God can use our life even if we're broken, fragile beings. Sometimes God doesn't use me because of me. Sometimes God uses because despite me, in spite of us or despite me. When I was a teen challenge, we used to have this fellow by the name of Michael. Now, I'll be really honest. I'll try to say it lovingly. And I think because of the poverty of his family, he might have had a second, maybe a third grade education. I mean, the guy couldn't speak English, much less Spanish. And back then, I used to let the students lead worship uh, during their month that they were going to graduate. We had a pretty good worship team, you know, kind of like we did today. Great job, group. You'll always do a great job. Great job, Andrew. And so he came up to me. And he said, Pastor Ted, Pastor Ted, I, I want to do worship. I want to do worship. And I looked at the guy and said, man, my goodness, you, you're not going to do nothing, buddy. They're going to laugh at you. You can't even speak. You, you know, you, you, you don't know the courses. You, you can't read. And, and I just knew that this is, this is going to be disaster. But I knew if I said no to him, I would harm him more than saying yes to him. How many know what I'm talking about? Well, when I said yes, I was just like regretting it. Have you ever regretted saying something to somebody? Anybody beside me? Okay, three of us. Hallelujah. Well, the day before, he said, Pastor Ted, Pastor Ted, God going to use me very much, very much, very much. It's going to be great, great, great worship service. Everybody's going to be very happy. You're going to be very happy. I mean, I couldn't even understand the guy talking to me. And so the next day, we started services at 7.30, finished at about 9 o'clock. I had to go to their classes. Sometimes 8.55, we had to kind of wrap it up. He said, Pastor Ted, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. 
And he's up there, 725, and some musicians were, were, were tuning up, and the guys are coming in. And when it was time, we were talking about the fact that God is compassionate. And God just uses, even though sometimes we're a bunch of country bumpkins, he still uses us. And he got up there. He gave me a wink. <laughs> I thought, oh, Jesus. Have mercy, Jesus, right? And so he got, and Harry was our piano player, and guys were going there, and I don't even know if he'd even chosen the song, but back then, we used to sing a song, he is exalted, the king is exalted on high, I will praise him, I don't know if he hit the right coat, but he got up there, and he jumped ahead of the musicians, and he began singing, he is exhausted, the king is exhausted on high. Well, you know what all the students began to do. Same thing y'all did. But they were just laughing and roaring. And he turns back to me. He said, Pastor Ted, I told you everybody be happy. Look at him, look at him, look at him. <laughs> but that's the compassion of God. Man, sometimes God sees that we're, we're fragile, broken beings. He remembers that we're just but dust, and we have this Adamic nature. But at the same time, this Father is compassionate to us. And the scriptures reveal him not just as God, but he is God our Father. Secondly, not only does the Father show compassion to us, but the Father really cares for us. He really does. I don't know about you, Rick, but sometimes I still struggle with trying to deeply understand and honor him and have full faith in all areas. I'm just not there. Neither are you. But notice that he really cares about us. In the book of Matthew chapter 6, the scripture says, Jesus, look, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. But what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or about your body, what you're going to put on, isn't your life more than food? Isn't your body more than just clothing? Jesus said, just look at the birds of the air. They're not being like you, Eric. They're not farmers. They're not sowing and cultivating and tilling the ground and putting the seeds into the ground. They're not sowing. They're not reaping. They don't go with the sickle or with the machines and take all the wheat, corn, or whatever. They're not reaping it. They're not putting into the barns, he says, and yet... Your heavenly father. He takes care of them. He says, aren't you and I of more value than them? He says one other thing at the end of this passage in Matthew. He talks about, he says, look at the grass. He clothes the grass with lilies. And he clothes the, the, the grass with this beautiful flowers and, and just makes it so much, just so much more beautiful. And yet, 
the grass, sometimes back then they would use the grass and they would use the grass just to burn it in the fire as fodder or for kindling wood or to, for fire to, to get something going. He says, but if God even clothes the grass of the field, he says, when he take care of you that much more, he says, oh, you have little faith. He says, don't be anxious. And say what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Let me just say a couple of things here. Let me just give you a whole doctoral dissertation on worry in just about two minutes. Why do we worry? Well, worry really is a secondary emotion. When you and I worry, the principal emotion is not worry and it's something behind worry. We worry or I worry because I can be fearful. I can worry because, you know, there's this thing, there's a something behind it. That's why I'm worrying. And so the worry is predicated by something behind me. So, so worry is a secondary emotion. It's not the primary emotion. And the reality, most anxiousness or worries, they never really come about. It's really our own machinations. Somebody said worry is like a rocking chair. There's a whole bunch of movement, but you're not going anywhere. It doesn't do you anything. And so this is what worries can do to you and I. And Christ says, listen, trust me. I'm your father, your heavenly father. He'll take care of you. Worries, what can they do? They can interfere with our work, with our appetite, with our relationships. They can interfere even with our sleep. That's true, isn't it? With our sleep. He says, worries can lead us to stress, to anxieties, to panic, to physical illnesses. It can lead us to emotional unhealthiness because we're worried. But Jesus says, listen, your heavenly father, he knows what you need. There's a rest that we can find in him as we continue learning to walk with him and trust him. What does the scripture say helps us overcome these worries? Well, how about talking about your worries to somebody? You say, give me a biblical example. In the multitude of, there is safety. They're both. So when you talk, when, I, when I'm stressed out, see, a lot of times Christians, oh, 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 don't admit it, don't admit it, don't admit it, <laughs> don't admit it. Sometimes you got to admit it. Jesus said, you got to say unto the mountain, you got to admit that there's a mountain. A lot of times, oh, no, 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 I'm not worried, but you're worried. Hey, look at the giant in the face and deal with the giant. And sometimes you've got to say, this is what I'm feeling. And you talk to your friend, and all of a, all of a sudden, your friend puts that problem in the right perspective. And by you getting it out, you, you use the word in Spanish, me desol. I undrown because I got it out. And so one of the ways biblically that we can overcome worries is by talking about it with a friend because in talking to them, they can begin to give us encouragement. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden that problem becomes a half a problem because somebody else has it. How about maybe in the middle of this worry that you might have, look at the big picture. Look at the big picture. What's the big picture? Oh, yeah, maybe I got a little kidney stone. Thank God I got a doctor. I got two doctors. I got Jesus, my big doctor. And I got little ones that Jesus kind of sometimes sends me to. 
Or maybe I got kidney stone, but I don't have the coronavirus. So, you know, all of a sudden you begin to put your problems in the right perspective. And you say, hey, hey, I'm pretty blessed. Incidentally, the coronavirus, how can I say this? Medical fact. The coronavirus, if you notice where all the viruses are occurring, they're occurring in the northern hemisphere. Because viruses operate best in cold weather. You don't hear people getting the flu in the summer, but you hear people getting the flu in the winter because that's when the viruses operate. There's a wonderful spiritual principle there. When your heart begins to become cold, the virus begins to set in. So you look and, you know, we have a couple like in Washington, up in the northern places, Washington, Oregon. There's maybe some lady that might have had something. But it, they're up in the north, China, all these northern provinces, north, you know, South Korea, all those. That's where they operate the best out of. But listen, see the big picture. Yeah, we may have a struggle, but in the big picture, we begin to say, man, God, I'm still mighty blessed. And we can either focus on the negative or we can focus on the positive. My attitude will determine my altitude. If I look at the negative, I'm going down. If I look at the positive, I'm going up. I like to use the expression, two men looked out of prison bars. One saw mud and the other saw stars. Get the mind of God in that situation. I have a worry. You got a worry? Go to the Lord. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? How do I handle this? Incidentally, Lena, God spoke to me yesterday about you in prayer. He wants you down the line. You need to start getting more involved in the worship. Deep in prayer, the Spirit of God spoke to me. I'm just giving it to you right there in front of everybody. Get the mind of God in the situation. What's God telling you? But for you to get the mind of God, you've got to spend time with God. And lastly, put God first. That's what he said. Listen, you seek first the kingdom of God. You really be involved in loving him. You really being involved in honor, man, where he's your father. If you really put him first, he said, all these other things will be added to you. But you got to put him first. Now, let me just say one other thing about first before we move to our third principle. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. I'll take care of you. Your father will take care of you. You just honor him first. But see, our human nature is... I gotta look out for myself and we worry. But Jesus says, if you'll trust your Heavenly Father and if you'll honor Him first, if you'll honor Him, He'll honor you. If you'll take care of His business, He'll take care of your business. Do you remember the woman who was going to cook her last meal with her son and die? And Elijah the prophet said, You make me first the cake. Then you go home. God will take care of you. There was enough meat on, there was enough oil until the famine was over. As we learn more and more to honor him first, our heavenly father will meet our needs. And so there's certain scripture verses, Matthew 5, 24. He says, 
You come to the altar. You know, you got something wrong with somebody. He said, you leave your gift at the altar. First, you go be reconciled to them. In the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 5, he says, listen, don't worry about the speck in somebody else's eye. He says, first, take the, take the beam out of your own eye. He says in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 38, I don't know what it says. I can't poke that one off the top of my head. One of those two say something along the line. He says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart. The other one talks about, he says, look, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup. He said, clean first the inside. He says, then you'll be ready. But he says, first do that. Second Corinthians 8, 5, it says, he says, concerning the Corinthians, they gave themselves first to the kingdom and to the work of the Lord. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, he says, you've lost your first fruits, or you've lost your first works, your first deeds. He said, go back to your first things that you used to do. And here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. While I'm here, while I'm here, you might as well get mad at me good enough. Proverbs says, Honor God with your first fruits. A lot of times we give God leftovers. Drop 20 to God. But see, people who tithe, they don't tithe to get close to God. People who tithe are close to God. That ain't for me, preacher. Yeah, it is. I'm just giving you the word. Because Malachi said, he said, I'm your father. He says, where's my honor? He says, would you bring the lame and the halt and the blind and the deficient sacrifices to your governor? He says, and why are you bringing that stuff to me? God wants a church that's filled with his glory, that's honoring him even with our first fruits. Keep preaching, preacher. It's the truth, but it's the truth. What are you going to do with your money? And that's what Jesus seek first. And you study the word first. Thirdly, The Heavenly Father is deeply involved with us. I know we don't like this kind of preaching, but if it's biblical, I got God behind me. And if God is behind me, it doesn't matter who's in front of me. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, Solomon says, my son... Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves just like a father, the son in whom he delights. Let me just say this before we move to our fourth and final point. There's two Hebrew words here. One is musar, the other is yokia. The word musar is the word that's used more of 
of a, of a, of a rebuke, of the reproving, of a chastisement. And look, let, let's be honest. You hear preachers say a whole bunch of stuff. Let's, you, you tell me what the truth is. How does this great God deal with you? Does he sometimes chastise you? Does he sometimes point things out to you? And sometimes he'll, he'll give us a little leña. You see, but we want to hear just words all the time. But if we're going to be biblical, let's take the whole counsel of God and let God speak truth to our hearts. Now, let me encourage us. But why does he do that? Why do you sometimes get on your kid? I'll tell you why you get on your kid. You know why you get on your kid? Because you don't want them to turn out to be just like you. we got on our kids because you see something and you say man if I don't deal with this it's going to harm them but why are you dealing with them you're dealing with them because you really love them you delight in them Molly and so those are two Hebrew words one is a reproof and the other one is a discipline now let me just say this we're getting ready to move to our fourth and final point let me say this concerning the word discipline there's two connotations in Hebrew. It can mean that just sometimes you discipline them like you would discipline a child. Or sometimes God disciplines us, not because we've done everything, anything wrong, but God is trying to work out gold in our life. Now watch. And hence, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, biblical theologians, sometimes... God will allow you and me to go through that same situation 7,231 times until we finally learn to be kind to our spouse or be kind to ourselves and stop beating ourselves up or learn how to be patient and gracious, not I tell it like it is. And so sometimes, because God cares about us, he'll allow us to go through life and life and life, and it's chipping and it's chipping and it's chipping away because he wants to make us children that will honor and glorify him and that we'll have the best in this world. But he's involved in our life. These things that you're going through right now, he's involved. He knows. He's working. Because just like the refiner's fire... They put the silver there, and he just continues turning up the heat to get the dross out, not because there's anything wrong, but because he wants to make everything right. He cares about you. He's involved, heavily involved with us. And fourthly and lastly, the fourth principle there, the Father gives gifts to us. In the book of James chapter 1 and verse 17, it says the following. It says, every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights. And so there you see the giver. He's the Father of lights. 
That is, when you look at God compared to Muslim theology, in Muslim theology, one of the names that Allah goes by, the sneaky one. He's the sneaky one. But scriptures reveal to us God as the father of lights. The Bible says God is light, and in him there is no darkness, not none. It's a double negative in the Greek. Nothing dark about God. Sir, so there you we see our giver. Notice the character of our giver. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, well, whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This God, this Father that we worship, this great one, the majestic almighty one, there is no variation in him. That's why Malachi says, because I don't change, you're not consumed. Children of Israel. Because if God was to sometimes wake up in a mood like sometimes I wake up, how many know what I'm talking about? Shoot. Sometimes, you know, take this, don't put this on the tape, take this off. Suzanne used to say sometimes on Mondays when I have a day off and I get antsy, <sighs> she sometimes she'd say, her and Allison used to say, don't you think you ought to go to work today? <laughs> get out of my hair. See, we're emotionally driven. God is character-based. And so there you see the giver. There you see the character of the giver. There you see the gifts of the giver. They're good. They're perfect. And finally, there you see the location of the giver. Every good and perfect gift, it's from above. It's a location. It's from above. And so when we look at that, we see that the Father is a giver. The Father is compassionate. The Father is involved. The Father cares. And these are just a few scripture verses that I've looked at concerning the character of the Father. We've looked at the character of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the character of Christ and the cross. And today we're looking at just one aspect, the character of the Father. I close by saying two things. One, he said, every good and perfect gift. This wonderful being that we're in the chase after, that we love, and maybe I should better say more correctly, more that loves us than we love him. It's not that we first love God. It's that God loved us. First loved us. And so God's this prime mover. There's nothing we could do to get back into the grace of God, but it's God that's on this chase. God has this mission. God's evangelistic. God's evangelistic. That's why we need to be lovingly ministering to people. Because God's evangelistic to bring people back to him. We need, come on back musicians, if you want to help us. God is trying to bring us back to him. I finished by saying this. And so every good and perfect gift, it's from above. We're talking about giving. I finished by just sharing this. Because there's many people who are filled with God. And I try to be a pastor that I don't want people to come to this church and just believe in him. I want people who will be disciples of him. And Jim was teaching her Sunday school class this morning, and I looked at her class, and I thought, man, these people, they're just not believers, man. They're disciples. 
everywhere they go, it's Christ. I finished by telling you a story about Manny. Talking about God's just, his giving. Manny was a friend of mine when I was at Pastor Teen Challenge. And uh, he's still a heroin addict, and he shot up heroin. And, uh, but, you know, when you're, when you're shooting up heroin, you're just like a thief. You know, you're always stealing and just all doing crazy stuff. He went to prison. He went to Rikers Island. He was in prison for a year. But when he was getting out, he called a friend of his and he said, I want you to give me some good hot dope. Friend said, sure. Man, he got out of Rikers Island. And, of course, now he hadn't shot up dope in a year, so his body's probably not going to be acclimated to the dope. So he's up there, and Manny went up to the fifth floor tenement building in Lower East Side, and he shot up the dope. But when he shot up the, the dope on the fifth floor, he was just by himself on Sunday. He shot up the dope and passed out, OD'd. Somebody found him up there. They called the paramedics. The paramedics came out there. They checked him. He died. And it was the day when they used to put a yellow tag on. Anybody remember that? They used to put a yellow tag on the toe. And nobody remember that? You remember that day? They used to put a yellow tag. They dragged his body down five floors. Put him in a body bag, dragged it down five floors. Put him in the ambulance, took him, put him in the morgue, slapped. So he's in, he's in dead. The slab. I don't know what happened, but while he was in the slab, Manny revived. It was cold, the weekend. Manny knows something's not right because he's locked in this tiny little box, whatever he's in. The slab in the morgue. And he began screaming, help, 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 help. This is the way Manny says it. I'm sure this is a little embellished, but it makes the story a little bit more cute. Manny said there was this janitor. And so the guy's cleaning, and he hears this noise coming up from inside the morgue. And he goes, and he ah, ah, hears. And so all of a sudden, the janitor comes. He has this broom, and he opens up this little, the little handle, and picks it open, just, and Manny sees a little light. Man, he kicks that thing as hard as he can. He said, I'm coming out. He said, that janitor, whoever he was, he said, the broom was still standing. He was already out the building. <laughs> you say, what are you saying, preacher? Here's what happened. They'd call Manny's father. They said, come in, identify your son who's dead. When Manny's father came down as he was getting ready to go into where the morgue was at, Manny's coming out. They started fighting right there. What are you doing to me? You're giving me a heart attack. You're going to kill me. What are you doing? He started fighting. You say, what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying this. But even though there was a scuffle, wasn't it a wonderful gift to the Father that my boy's alive? Wasn't it a wonderful gift even to many? I could have died. I could have died in the coldness of this morgue, but I'm alive. My friend, every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. And so when we look at God as our Father, God's compassionate. God's caring, God's involved, and God's giving. Our Father, there's none like Him. Bless His name, world without end. Amen, amen, amen. 
Amen. And all God's people together said, Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship our Father as we finish this morning?